The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am honored today to welcome my guest, Dr. Monica White. She is an associate professor of environmental justice at the Gaylord Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies in the Department of Community and Environmental Sociology at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. She is the author of a tremendous new book titled Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement, was published by the University of North Carolina Press. The book is the winner of the 2020 First Book Award from the Association for the Study of Food in Society. It's also the winner of the 2019 Eduardo Bonilla Silva Outstanding Book Award from the Division of Race and Ethnic Minorities section of the Society for the Study of Social Problems. Welcome, Dr. White. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I feel like this book is both a roadmap and a historical treasure in terms of understanding African Americans in agriculture and food and justice. And it is a treasure that I hope many, many more people will pick up and read so that we can come to a better world, really. Mm. I have How to, kind of you. Thank you. Oh, it's, Thank a, you. it's a treasure. It truly is. You describe this book as a love letter, and we're going to dive into that. But first, I want to understand a little bit more about your background and how you came to study food and agriculture. Mm. Yes, thank you. So I had an opportunity to move back to Detroit to care for my parents. And I was leaving uh, one school, headed to another school, and I needed a research question. I knew about the urban ag movement, and I'd also known that everybody in my family had always grown food. So we've never lived in a house where my dad didn't grow food. Uh, my sister grew uh, corn and zucchini and uh, eggplant on the east side of Detroit. And my grandmother uh, was in a wheelchair, and she had an, a container garden. And so when you stop by to see her, she'd want you to water her tomatoes because the logic for her was if they grow in soil outside, they grow in soil inside. And so she was a little bit ahead of her time in that regard. And so moving back to Detroit, I knew that black people were growing food in Detroit. But I knew that the representation of folks who were growing food in Detroit, that was missing from the conversation. And so what was important to me was to offer this story of why African-Americans particularly were growing food in Detroit. And that was something that I saw was missing. And it was an opportunity to add a different voice other than what I'd seen in in national media. Mm -hmm. Well, this book certainly speaks to what's going on in Detroit, but it is a historical record of African-Americans in agriculture, and boy, is it an eye-opening account. I think it should be required reading for any student of agriculture and sociology and dietetics. So, Wow, thank you. Well, you're welcome. And I know that this book was a labor of love, as any big writing project is, but you describe this book as a love letter, and I want you to explain to our listeners what you mean by that. Yeah. So I call it a love letter because I feel like 
as a society, we ask questions of what do you feel like eating? What do you want to eat? But we often ask that question disconnected from the food system and the process, the labor of those who have provided our nutrition. And so knowing what I knew about my own family growing food in Detroit, but more than that, I knew that there was this missing story, this missing narrative of African-Americans who were interested in growing food as a part of a, a social justice frame. So we knew a lot about tenant farming and slavery. We know a lot about sharecropping. And these are all from a deficit model. But what we didn't know was, we didn't know a lot about black people who were connecting to the earth, connecting to the soil as a strategy of community wellness and as a way to demonstrate resilience and resistance. And so it was important for me to be able to capture that story as a counter narrative to what we're often told. And it was important for me to be able to document that the richness of those who see themselves as part of the ecosystem. And so it's a love letter because I feel like there were centuries of black farmers who had never received their due. They never received their respect. They'd never received even salary for their labor. And so this book was an opportunity for me to unearth those voices of those who have truly built the nation through our hands and yet have never been honored or respected in that way. I think it's also a love letter because it is understanding and recognizing that a lot of the solutions to some of the social problems that we have, can, uh, that some of the solutions are embedded in or just experienced or expressed or created by those who exper- express food insecurity. And so it's an honor of those who look at a vacant lot and then transform that lot into music, art, food, intergenerational relationships. And so it was just witnessing what it looks like to go from a lot into a garden, a community space, and the love that people who are doing this work has for their work, for children, not only their own children, but other people's children and, you know, community children. And so I just feel like when you're around farmers, you can't deny that they love the land, they love the soil. When you're around folks who are doing these food projects, you feel the love. And so I wanted the book to reflect the love that I saw and the love that enveloped me as I was investigating these questions. And so this book is really a mirror. It's a reflection of what I saw. And so I wanted folks to hear their work from a different perspective and one that honored who they were and what they did. And, you know, from my limited understanding of food history and agricultural history, you speak to this point of missing history. And mm-hmm. I, what I love about your book is it brings forth a different narrative that mm-hmm. many of us in the white community likely missed out on during their training. And even through dietetics, you know, you'd think that we would study agriculture too, but we Mm -hmm. don't. That's missing as well. And you had a quote that you shared. When I was preparing for this interview, I watched a talk that you gave at the University of Wisconsin in 2017. No, excuse me. I think that was in Detroit, actually. It was in 2017. Michigan. Michigan, yes. It was one of the- University of Michigan. Yes. Mm -hmm. It was part of their food literacy series. Mm Mm-hmm. It was an Mm -hmm. excellent presentation. I'm going to provide a link to our listeners. But in that talk, you shared a quote from George Washington Carver, and the quote was, there is probably no subject more important than the study of food. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful to hear that he was even aware of, I mean, that he centralized the importance of food, but yet that's something that most people don't know and most people don't even talk about. And when you read the pamphlets that he wrote, for small farmers, you could hear how important 
food production was, but also consumption, because he said that there's so many things on the farm, so many things you should be doing to make sure that you're strong, that you're healthy, that you're getting a balanced diet, and those kinds of things. So I think that the research uncovered for me a vision of George Washington Carver that I hadn't seen, I hadn't heard before. Yeah, it's beautiful. And of course, George Washington Carver is featured in your book. When I think of George Washington Carver, I think of peanut research, which is, again, so limited to all that he spoke about. He even spoke about, he had a word for using agricultural products in industry. Sure. I don't know if that was his word. I don't know the origins of the word. I do know that I found it in my study of his work. But there were lots of industries that were reaching out to him to help come up with good plant-based combinations for paint for all kinds of industrial applications. So at some point, you kind of feel like, had that been developed even further, we may have more sustainable resources that we use in our technology today, had that been explored. Exactly. And I just bring this up again to point at that part. One of the reasons why your book is so rich is because it brings forth that missing history that, gosh, I feel like the time is right for all of us to become more familiar with this. So again, a big thank you. Of course, the title of your book, Freedom Farmers, I am assuming, and you can correct me, but I'm assuming the title came from Fannie Lou Hamer, who started the Freedom Farm. And it was a cooperative. And there's a lot of discussion in your book about cooperative farming, collective farming. And that's not the way we think in a capitalistic society. That's right. That's right. So first, I I give credit to Suliata Chajua, who's at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. When I told him I was thinking about the book and thinking about doing the research on the book, he gave me the title Freedom Farmers. So I give him credit for that. And just thinking about cooperatives are an economic strategy that uh, communities use to increase access to resources widely, broadly defined. And so where an individual may have a difficult time accessing certain kinds of resources, collectively we have more power, you know, economically, politically, and otherwise. And so I love watching the development of cooperatives because it's transforming people from an I or me to a we. And as I hope you're familiar with Dara Cooper, who does some incredible food justice work. She says that individually we are vulnerable. Collectively we have power. And so when you see one farmer, one farmer may not be able to provide enough produce to make it worth the while for a distributor, but yet a co-op of farmers who have agreed about made some understanding as to what will grow, how much we'll charge, those kinds of ideas, that makes it better for a collective of farmers and to see how this has worked historically even today, there I think that there are lots of conversations of folks uh, creating cooperatives as an economic alternative to being individually vulnerable, I think. And yet, when you talk about learning about cooperative business models, I don't believe that they are traditionally taught in the business schools, at least mm-hmm. at the universities that I'm aware of. It's more likely a concept that is taught and explored in rural sociology departments, So the fact that you bring forth this model of business, I think, is really important. Thank you. Well, it's funny you would say that because actually here at UW-Madison, we have the Center for Cooperatives. And every year they run conferences on how to do a startup. There's a whole wide range of strategies that that center is doing that's super important. And so 
serendipity brought me to Madison where I learned a lot more about cooperatives than I thought I would. Right. So is that part of the business school or is this a standalone? It's a separate entity. Yeah. Well, I think it's really smart for us to be thinking about alternatives because clearly before COVID hit, we were really focused, or at least I was really focused on the impact of climate change when it came to our food system and public health. And I think that not only you describe agriculture as a strategy for resistance, but cooperatives are a strategy for resistance as well. Oh, yeah. That's right. And if you really, really, really want to do a deep dive into understanding the history of African-Americans, particularly in cooperatives, uh, Dr. Jessica Nemhart's book, Collective Courage, gives you a real thorough analysis of cooperatives as an economic strategy for African-Americans particularly. So that's a worthy, I think it'd be worth your time. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, if we're going to talk about cooperatives, I think we do need to talk about Fannie Lou Hamer and with the Freedom Farm Cooperative. And as I'm reading about it, I'm enthused about all of her concepts that she brought to the cooperative, but I was really sad that it didn't last very long. So let's talk about Fannie. I was appalled that she was forcibly sterilized in Mississippi. She went in, I think, for a, was it a uterine fibroid? And she came out sterilized. And this was not unique. This was something that was happening to African-American women. But not only African-Americans. There are also historical examples where Latinx women have been involuntarily sterilized. So this is not... As horrifying as it is, it happens probably more often than I think we know. Right. But I'm glad that you brought it up in the book because it stops us in our tracks. That's uh, right. And it makes us think, my gosh, it could have been me. And how would I feel if I was in Fanny's shoes? Right. And so anyway, she sets up this Freedom Farm Cooperative. And I just need to remind everyone that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Dr. Monica White. And we are talking about her beautiful book titled Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement. She is an assistant professor of environmental justice at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Okay, let's dive into Fanny and tell me about the Freedom Farm Cooperative. Well, Mrs. Hainer believed, well, there were several things. One, she acknowledged that there was a big push to move African-Americans, particularly out of the South, as a result of mechanization in the agricultural industry, right? And so Mrs. Hamer said, when you leave the South, you leave everything. Don't leave the South. And so she was trying to get folks to stay. And so what I think happened, particularly especially after her speech for the Democratic National Convention, was that you can have the right to vote, you can be denied the right to vote, but what does this mean in terms of your ability and capacity to feed yourself? And so upon her return, recognized that the folks around her were impoverished and that there were some resources that they had access to that could be utilized in this way. And so started Freedom Farm Agricultural Cooperative, and I was often struck with what it must have felt like for someone. Uh, Mrs. Hamer was one who registered to vote, returned to her place of employment, which is also her residence at Marlow Plantation, and was informed that her registering to vote meant that she was fired and evicted. And so I often thought what what it must have felt like for those who had been punished for exercising their right to then be evicted and fired, and yet what an opportunity it was, Mrs. Hamer said, and yet we have 
we have this vision of what it will look like for us to buy land together, for us to work collectively and cooperatively and to care for each other. So I feel like that part of it is really enriching, especially as I was writing the book and talking about what must it feel like for folks who are involved in the automobile industry, who are losing their jobs and losing their homes and losing their employment. What message might Mrs. Hamer have for folks in Detroit who are going through the bankruptcy and what have you? And so just thinking about what opportunities she offered, um, she offered retraining. So for those who were sharecroppers and tenant farmers who knew how to grow cash crops, they converted to growing food crops and making sure that they had this collective growing space, this cooperative growing space, where about 10% of all they harvested went directly to the market for folks who were unable to work. They did retraining for how to build homes. They had all kinds of resources that were available that were missing for community members. So they had uh, mobile medical units. They were doing food preservation, canning, and, and what have you. And so I think a lot of times when people think that what we're doing now, or at least what the Urban Ag Movement has meant, it has always it felt new to people. And so I just wanted to show that while it's new to us. It may not be new historically. And to think about and look at this example of what Mrs. Hamer was able to do with much fewer resources than what we have now. And even though it didn't last very long, that there were lessons that we could learn and adjustments that we could make that might be useful for this generation as we think about what it feels like or what does it take for us to care for our community members in terms of nutrient-rich foods, education, housing, transportation, medical resources, and that kind of thing. So I just feel like it was such a beautiful example of not too, too long ago that we could look to and say, if she was able to do this in this context, what can we do with this generation? What could we do? What might be our contributions to this work? Absolutely. It's a model for moving forward and reevaluating yeah. how do we want our communities to look. Yeah, and I think that, that's right. that we can learn so much from that. So I'm curious right. to know, though, I was trying to figure out why they lost funding. They had, I want to know more about its demise. And I think there's some question marks still remaining about really sure. what happened. Yeah. What are your right. thoughts about why it didn't continue? Yeah, some of it had to do with health. Mrs. Hamer fell ill and the business manager passed away. Some of it had to do with weather events, several years of drought and some years of flood prevented them from being able to grow the crops, that the proceeds of which went into paying for the, the land and what have you. And I think some of it was, you know, just trying to decide there's so many needs and how do you make decisions about which priorities we should have. And sometimes the priorities of feeding people, that may not always return an investment that is something that a banker might see as payment. And so I do think that there were several things that happened as a perfect storm that made Freedom Farm difficult to continue, all of which was heartbreaking when you're reading through the archives and it just you see the, feel the excitement of buying the land, and then you see later on the difficulties and the financial difficulties and otherwise some of the different kinds of decisions that folks were making that made it difficult for them to continue. And people who pass, like Mrs. Hamer, it becomes really clear that the organization can, uh, cannot continue in, in that form. Well, I think the beauty of you describing the farm and the cooperative, I think what it does is it shows where there are holes and how we can prevent 
another cooperative from having the same demise. And so I think that's the beauty of it. And I just want to say that because we're going to be voting in a very important presidential election coming up, I just want to say that Fannie Lou Hamer was also jailed and beaten for, I believe it was uh, attempting to register to vote. That's right. So this, to me, is a message for African-Americans and for women to know that our struggle, not only to feed ourselves, but to also have a voice, uh, not that many years ago, it was oppressed violently. And so we have an opportunity and we have a responsibility in the name of these warriors who came before us to get to the polling booth and make our choices. So that's just an aside. I think your example, you know, is a historical example, but I do think that there are efforts afoot to keep people from the polls, and so we don't have to rely on looking back. Sometimes we can look at today's newspaper, and that may tell us some of the ways that people are being discouraged to participate in the electoral process. And so I just want us to be mindful that that is often contentious. I don't know a time when it hasn't been. Right. Absolutely. Yes, a very important point. So when people do come together, when people who have been historically repressed or oppressed, when they come together and they create this source of community strength, that is often seen as a threat, isn't it? Sure. And you describe that in the book. Let's talk about that. You know, what was really interesting was as I was looking up the research for various cooperatives, often in a similar newspaper, there would be recognition and celebration around white farmers who created cooperatives. Mm-hmm. However, when it was African-Americans who were engaged in organizing collectives and cooperatives, it was seen as as a threat, as you say. Somehow it had some sinister intention. Somehow it had some transgressive intention. And I'm not saying that that's not true. I mean, I think that there were lots of ways that the cooperatives were organizing to stop the exploitation and oppression that they felt as tenant farmers and sharecroppers. And so while we recognize that this was a form of resistance, it was really interesting that the folks who wrote the newspaper articles were so clearly supportive of white cooperatives and so clearly skeptical and suspicious of the same act when black farmers were organizing. Hmm. Yeah, it's so important to consider the ways we think about the same activities right. if they're done by right. someone with white skin versus sure. someone with dark skin. Right. Yeah, yeah, the difference that race makes. I'm sorry. Exactly. Yeah, yes. The difference that race, the makes. Difference yeah. that race yeah. makes. And that is the yeah. beauty of your book, is that it really brings attention to these issues that are coming to the fore today. So again, very timely reading. I want to say something, Dr. White. You have described yourself as a scholar activist. And I've been in other audiences of meetings where people who are academia, they don't feel comfortable in the activist role. They feel like their responsibility is to put forth the information. And what I really admire about you is that you recognize that you have a responsibility, that you've got this scholarship under your belt. Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. more to it than just reporting it. You also describe Mm -hmm. yourself in this activist role. Can you Talk to me about that. Oh, that's a a great question. So, yes, you're asking how I come to define myself as as a scholar activist, or what does it mean to be a scholar activist? What does it mean to be a scholar activist, how you came to that, and helping Mm -hmm. others see that they perhaps have a responsibility 
to use their scholarship to work for the greater good? Yes. So I call myself a scholar activist because both parts of me are important, and they both remind me of my commitment to community. So as a child raised in Detroit by my father had a, uh, was a professor at Wayne State University. My mom has a master's degree and was an educator. Books were always my friends. School was always, even though it wasn't easy, but it was always a place I felt and found comfort. And so I have always wanted to find what my contributions to the world could be. And in doing so, I found that it was in my love of language and my love of asking these kinds of questions that if I ask the right kinds of questions in community with other folks who are trying to bring about a better world, it would allow me the opportunity to use my gifts of the academy for our community wellness and as a strategy to, to uplift the conversation, I think. So for me... You know, I think I disagree with Audre Lorde, who says that the master's tool cannot be used to dismantle the master's house. I don't know what tool she meant when she said that. But if language is what she intended, I do think that language in the academy can be useful in these ways. And I wanted to make sure that whatever it is that I learned, that I make sure that that's accessible. And I make sure that I use that as my gift and as a gift to the black community, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. So, as a Scott, go go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just agreeing with you that it absolutely does make sense. So I was just taught, you know, to whom what is it the 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 saying uh, to for those to whom much is given, much is required. And so the questions that I ask are all informed by community. There is not a part of my research agenda that does not come from community. And so I'm always asking the question: What don't we know? And how might what I know be useful in asking the questions and coming up with answers that are useful to building uh, strong, healthy, whole uh, black uh, communities? And so doing so, it's just a scholar activist. I don't like to choose between those two. Both are part of who I am. Both inform each other. And I think the tools that I learn in both spaces offer an opportunity for me to sort of figure out where I sit in the academy and in community, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. We just have a minute, so I'd like for you to just give our listeners a charge. What is a message that you would like our listeners to leave this conversation with today? I think that what I'd like to leave your listeners with is the idea that we have an opportunity to design a food system that is responsive to our desires, right? And so if we want a food system that is a local food system, then what are the ways that we're feeding (laughs) that vision, right? Pardon the pun. You know, how are we supporting small family farmers? How are we supporting black farmers? How are we supporting cooperatives? How are we supporting, like, so I, I just feel like each of us has a decision to make and each of us, I mean, not to be cliche about it, but we do vote with our dollars. And the way we spend our money tells what kind of world we want and what kind of what we're willing to contribute to. And so if there's anything I'd like to share is to look around to those who are doing this kind of work in a way that really does improve and build a sense of community health and wellness and to support those ideas, both in terms of our finances, in terms of our sweat equity, in terms of the kinds of resources that organizations can use in order to, to offer alternatives to what we call big eggs. Oh, thank you so much for that. We need to close. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn, 
for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Monica White, Associate Professor of Environmental Justice at the Gaylord Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and author of Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement, a book that is so perfect for our times. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you.